Hello everyone, I have Emily Chen here with me today and we are chatting about all things polar regions. So I know I have focused a lot about coral reefs and generally the more tropical side of ocean conservation and a lot of our guests have been experts in those regions. I think it's just as important to feature other regions and the polar regions are absolutely fascinating. And that's why when Emily contacted me about her study, which has to do with ostracods at the Institute of Ocean in Poland that focuses on the polar regions, both Antarctica and the Arctic, I thought it would be a fantastic opportunity to show some spotlight to these lesser talked about regions. If you enjoy this episode, please make sure to let me know and let Emily know as well. She is very open and excited to talk to any up and coming marine scientists and ocean lovers. So shoot her an email or me an email, Ocean Pancake, and all her information is going to be on oceanpancake.com. So head on over there to check that out. Now let's dive into polar bears, ostracods, scuba diving, and all things climate. Every day there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution. If the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. Hi, and welcome to the podcast, Emily Chen, who is a PhD student uh, at the Institute of Oceanography in Poland. Welcome to Ocean Pancake. Perfect, Kat. Thank you so much for inviting me on to the podcast. I'm excited to talk about a lot of different topics today. Yeah, uh, you sent me an email and you just had so much knowledge and experience that you wanted to share. I'm so excited that we finally managed to find the time that works. Um, So let's dive right in. Start by uh, sharing a little bit of your background and how you got into marine conservation in the first place. Well, I actually grew up in New Jersey, on the Jersey Shore, and I know it's been said time and time again, but growing up in such close proximity to the ocean did influence my decision to pursue marine science. Well, to be fair, I did take a pretty roundabout approach to get to where I am now. I was able to kind of get hands-on experience in marine science at a very young age, since I attended a public marine science specialized high school. I was on a barrier island, which gave me amazing opportunities, such as being on a research vessel and applying what we learned in the classroom at only 14 years old. So going from sitting in a classroom and making flashcards of local fish to actually conducting fish stock assessments and handling these species was pretty invaluable. I mean, if you can imagine 15 teenagers rummaging through crates of animals, brought up by trawling and quickly shouting identifications before precariously throwing crabs and flounders back in the water. Those aren't really experiences you forget. And kind of having been a high school teacher, 
I know how difficult it is to keep students engaged. And I'm so appreciative of those early years looking back since all the teachers really designed projects and pushed our creativity in the context of we were, what we were actually learning. And kind of even though I did have fun, I never thought I would pursue marine science and actually went to university as a pre-medicine student for four years. But in, during that time, I also jumped around a few other disciplines before finally landing degrees in Spanish, linguistics, and marine biology. And never looked back. <laughs> what a combination. I didn't actually know that any high schools did have these sort of immersive programs. Do you know of any others that run similarly, oh. or was this just unique to New Jersey? Uh, no, they're actually um, spread all over the place. Um, specifically, even just within our county that I grew up in in New Jersey, they had one for technology that was specialized, one for communications and arts, one for health for people who did want to pursue uh, medicine in college. So I think, it, and they're all public schools, um, just vocational schools didn't have to pay anything. Um, you just had to apply to get in. But I think that was those I, those um, high schools are honestly such great experiences. And if you do find that opportunity around, I really encourage young students to go out and try. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I would have loved to have the opportunity to get out to the ocean. I, I did grow up landlocked, so we oh. did have the opportunity to go up into the mountains and do various biological surveys, you know, on grass, <laughs> which wasn't quite as riveting, I think, as uh, collecting fish data uh, for, for someone who's into oceans as much as me. <laughs> oh, I guess any sort of field work is still experience. And now I think you're based in Brisbane, Australia. So much closer. Yeah, yeah, definitely closer to the to the coast. I've actually moved a bit further north. So I'm more uh, adjacent to the Great Barrier Reef than I was before. So very lucky. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so let's kind of move on after your initial experiences with marine biology and then your fascinating combination of um, degrees. How did you move uh, to Poland and what projects are you working on now at the Institute of Oceanography? It's been a few years since I've lived in the U.S. I did my, I did an international master's, which is kind of a consortium of 10, 11 different partner universities. And basically what we did is we could choose every semester to jump to a different university, which was great to kind of get that firsthand um, experience, uh, kind of meeting people from all over the world and seeing how different education and research systems work in different countries. So I kind of, that kind of cemented my, my desire to kind of stay in Europe. Uh, on different ways to communicate science more efficiently. But I did move to Poland because I was living in the Czech Republic, which is also landlocked. Uh, <laughs> so that was an interesting experience. It was my first time um, working with freshwater regions. And I can, and it was a great experience, but I can safely say that I do need to be in walking distance to an ocean now. So I am here. I'm, my institute is honestly just a couple feet from the beach, which is amazing. And currently right now at the institute, I'm working on Arctic and Antarctic zooplankton, 
And so for those of your listeners that don't know, plankton basically consists of phytoplankton and zooplankton. And phytoplankton are kind of single-celled plants that produce over half of the world's oxygen. And I know even though most people will only kind of think of trees when asked about oxygen producers. And so plankton are tiny animals that drift with the currents, and they can be small organisms such as krill, which we all know, or also the larval forms of other invertebrates, such as snails, crabs, sea urchins. Honestly, if you do go look online for sea urchin larvae or barnacle larvae, you will never be able to guess what animals they grow to be. It is amazing. So they both together, phyto and zooplankton, they form the base of the marine food web. And right now I'm doing my PhD specifically on ostracods, which are commonly called seed shrimp. Uh, they're called that because if you can imagine a tiny shrimp enclosed in a thin clam-like shell, that's pretty much it. They're extremely small with the largest species called the giant ostracods, which actually only measure up to roughly 1.3 inches or around three and a half centimeters. But they're super important in the marine food web and understanding kind of their distribution and biodiversity will be super important to relate the results back to any long-term uh, climate change factors. And we're using these ostracods to test a phenomenon called bipolarity concept. Pretty self-explanatory, bipolarity, north and south pole. It refers to the presence of identical species in polar regions in both the north and south pole without any connecting population in the tropics. So potentially there could be identical species on both sides of the world, but no, no uh, evidence of any connecting populations. And we're also in the starting process of using environmental DNA for a non-invasive approach. It's um, kind of, a it could really revolutionize ocean conservation. So we're super excited about that as well. There is the potential that the, these ostracods exist in both the North and South Pole waters that like identical populations that haven't di diverged from one another? Mm -hmm. So basically identical um, species. And this could, there's many different theories. It could be from deep water migrations, from ocean currents. It could be because humans, human mediated transfer, or like a, mm -hmm. there's also something called a convergent origin theory where identical species evolved independently, but are but really got pushed to because of environmental factors. So what, what else can you tell us about what you have found so far about the Arctic and Antarctic phytoplankton? Uh, well, honestly, I did start my program only a few months ago. So we are still in the troubleshooting stages. We're still doing a lot of planning with marine research. There's so much going on all the time. It's so interdisciplinary where we have computer work, lab work, field work, uh, especially the field work takes a lot of planning, a lot of coordination. So we're kind of just in the early stages of that right now. Have been doing a lot of field work on historically preserved samples. So we have samples accessible to us from a really long time series 
which means that that these samples come from a region that is consistently sampled every year. My samples right now are from 2009 and 2020, so around a decade. However, there is a potential to access samples from much, uh, much more historical samples, even from the 1920s, from the Discovery Expedition to Antarctica. So it will be very interesting to see how populate how the, how the zooplankton population has changed from the 1920s to 2020. Yeah, 100 years worth of data. You mentioned that studying them could kind of unravel some of the mysteries about climate change or some of the impacts to do with that. Could you expand on that a little bit? Well, because they're such an important part of the food web, we can really see how their population changed, their abundances, and other factors influence the entire uh, the so the zooplankton to the marine invertebrates to the vertebrates such as fish, etc. It really moves along the entire food web. And what's interesting with ostracods is their shell is made out of, or they're calcitic. So it's really sensitive to mm-hmm. any environmental changes, especially acidification. So we can really kind of get a glimpse of how these stressors from climate change are impacting kind of the base of the food web. And they're so understudied, um, ostracods, because most people re- uh, really go for copepods, which kind of are super abundant, very well studied. However, ostracods also form a large part of diet and overall zooplankton population. So I think I'm excited to learn a little bit more about an understudied. Could you tell me the two differences between understudied and the overstudied pod? <laughs> well, yeah. um, so the uh, copepod and ostracods are both tiny crustaceans. And they're pretty abundant. They're found in nearly every freshwater and saltwater habitat in the world. You can go to literally the poles, which is the samples I'm working on. You can go to the tropics, to temperate regions. You will find both of these organisms. So they're they're pretty numerous and very, uh, very wide habitat ranges. And some of them are planktonic, which means that they inhabit the entire water column. So they're the ones floating around. And copepods and ostracods are also benthic, which means that they live on the ocean floor. So they're both pretty similar. If you do look it up, they're kind of just like tiny little crustaceans. So as as you mentioned, uh, the Ostracods are understudied, but another area which doesn't seem to get quite as much attention or, you know, love on the conservation scale uh, are the polar regions because, you know, the cool and sexy thing right now in conservation are the reefs. So Mm -hmm. can you tell us a bit more about how the polar regions interplay in uh, the oceans and the planet's health? Oh, of course. So I, I don't, with regards to uh, what kind of what you suggested that the polar regions are kind of ignored in conservation messages. I don't think that there's an active ignorance per se. Um, we're all aware of what's happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone's at least seen the viral stories of polar bears roaming around with no ice. 
But I think from a human aspect, it's pretty interesting because we kind of have this ability to distance ourselves from issues that don't immediately and directly affect us. Like if somebody lives inland, a flood on a coastal town may not be their primary concern. And even if our even if our idealistic values are able to take all action necessary against climate change, we oftentimes will go against our values to keep our current comfort level. And I think on an individual level, there's also the collective sense of futility of our actions and overall anxiety when we're talking about such global problems like climate change, etc. But I think the polar regions are super unique. Um, For those that don't know yet, the biggest difference uh, between the Arctic and Antarctic is, well, besides geographical, in a simplistic uh, description, the Arctic is sea surrounded by land, while the Antarctic is land, a literal continent, surrounded by sea. And they both play such a big part in regulating the world's climate. And when we think of Arctic and Antarctic, we have ice, and this white ice reflects some of the sun's rays back into space. So it basically helps keep the earth at an even temperature. But with melting sea ice Mm -hmm. and increased rates of warming, um, especially um, in the North Atlantic, it could impact key oceanic cycles, such as the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation. Long word, don't worry about it. It honestly is just a really big big, um, circulation of currents uh, that pulls water, warm water from the tropics towards the North Atlantic, towards the north, where it cools, sinks into the deep ocean, and flows southward again, and eventually rises to the surface. So it really, just a general simplistic gist, it distributes heat and energy. So it plays a major role in sustaining worldwide climate patterns. And it's super important in regulating climate in Europe and coastal North America. And that's the thing with with all the ice melting they're worried essentially well you're worried we're worried (laughs) that uh this this current is going to become less strong since the difference in temperatures is going to be less therefore it's going to move slower that was my understanding of it when i read about it um but basically we don't really know what's going to happen which is why i think it's so scary and why so many of us do kind of try put the polar bear out of our mind (laughs) yeah this episode is brought to you by you guys thank you so much for all your support which comes from sharing the content liking the content i have amazing people who are also donating to be able to support this project to keep going forward or you can buy yourself a t-shirt which you know shows the ocean pancake love even more so. I have some really exciting projects coming up, so I will be letting you guys know about all that. But yeah, if you could follow the podcast on Spotify or any other platform where you are listening to the podcast, it would mean the world to me. Thank you so much. Also, make sure to let me know if there is any ocean conservationist scientists, activists that you would like me to speak to and kind of spotlight their missions. Side note that they're actually the polar regions are super unique in terms that 
There's also been a tremendous growth in tourism activities over the last decades. And even though there's like no permanent human habitations in Antarctica, the number of shipborne tourists increased by over 300% in 13 years and land-based tourists by over 900% in the last decade, which is really going to be interesting to see the broad impacts of polar tourism, which is something very new. Interesting. Yeah, I guess we're all trying to find places we haven't been yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you had the chance to visit either Antarctic or Antarctica? The Arctic uh, or have, Antarctica? Yeah, Arctic or Antarctica. Um, I have been to the Canadian Arctic. And for my project here at, in Poland, we are, there's, uh, we have a research vessel that goes out pretty often. And I plan to be in the Arctic on Svalbard in August. To September and then we go down to Antarctica in January so pretty interesting I don't do too well in the cold so it's going to be a pretty fun experience yeah I bet and you'll definitely have to come back on to tell us about your experience there and what you actually see firsthand oh yes definitely mm -hmm. another thing you mentioned in your email was how you're a big believer of kind of merging hard and social sciences. Could you expand a little bit on uh, your perspective in this area? Um, well, I think that marine science is very unique in the sense that it almost inherently calls for interdisciplinarity, which uh, for younger listeners is the act of combining multiple academic disciplines into research. So from the social science side, this can be subjects ranging from law, linguistics, anthropology, politics, etc., which are all intertwined with the ocean. So when you're talking specifically on merging social science into marine research, if you think about it, climate change is placing increasing pressure on the world's oceans and their resources, which threatens long-term sustainability and overall societal well-being. So in the grand scheme of things, how can we push through policies without taking into account how it will affect the people? There really needs to be cooperation. And the good thing is that we can see a growing trend of interdisciplinary projects that take into account the social and environmental aspects equally. And very random side note, there's actually a term coined from the business sector that I kind of like called the T-shaped professional. So when you think about a capital T, the horizontal bar is a broad background that an expert has, has in a lot of topics. And the vertical bar is the high level of expertise within one discipline. And this makes it easy for professionals to adapt and address issues in a holistic manner. And of course, this isn't to say that specialists are obsolete. Researchers are all amazing at what they do and we need their expertise to ground scientific research. But there's also always been a disparity between hard and social science in terms of methodology, approach, interaction with communities, etc. And having a holistic view is very important in extreme environments such as the Arctic and tropics, because oftentimes the best scientific solution doesn't equal the best solution for the local communities that these policies will directly impact.
I think that's very well put. Uh, when you're talking about, you know, populations up there or the communities up there or down there, depends which way you're thinking. Uh, I think a lot of people kind of have the idea that the Antarctic and Arctic are completely uh, unpopulated and it's just a big no man's land. So what what communities are you kind of talking about and have you had the opportunity to speak to them and kind of learn from their experiences? Uh, so they're all spread all across the Arctic, not, not so much in Antarctica, it's uninhabited, but indigenous <laughs> groups in the Arctic have kind of lived in and cultivated their landscape for millennia. And the scientific community traditionally in the past have overlooked local ecological knowledge as a proper knowledge system alongside modern science. However, so many of these communities have recorded environmental and biodiversity changes along long timescales, and they're the ones directly dealing with the struggles and impact of change. I mean, we can't just go into communities, their communities, and tell them this is what you have to do. It's not going to do anyone mm -hmm. any good. Um, so basically what we have is we work directly with um, a lot of social scientists who have the anthropological expertise, who understand these, these cultures and kind of work with them, work with the indigenous groups, their community leaders, et cetera. Just kind of having a transparent and open communication about, uh, about their environment, how it's changing, how we can incorporate them more into policy and decision-making. And so I have actually worked with indigenous communities in the tropics, not so much in the Arctic, but that's definitely something that I hope to incorporate throughout my time here. Yeah, it would be so fascinating to be able to learn what they've seen as the changes as changes in these areas because I I can't even imagine it. I mean, it's such a distant idea. The you know the white snow and the cold. Hey, <laughs> I, I don't know. I wonder if they think it's warmer. If there's less fish, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but it's. Honestly, it's been so great to see a positive change though, um, especially within the last decade with awareness. And there's so many mm -hmm. now large scale conferences and organizations focusing more on incorporating kind of the socio-cultural responses to a changing ocean. However, we really have to be sure that this isn't just lip service. Nowadays, the subject is kind of becoming a buzzword and we hear it everywhere, but unless we keep pushing for equality of voices at the table and meaningful incorporation of traditional knowledge into scientific projects and policies, it's just empty talk. But I must say that the Canadian working groups have been doing amazing work recently with Indigenous peoples and First Nations to ensure effective management of the areas and really engage local communities starting from a young age. Yeah, that's incredible. And that's hopefully we're going to see more of a shift of mm -hmm. uh, policy policymakers incorporating Indigenous knowledge. I, I mean, I think that's the same anywhere in the world here in Australia and the tropical regions on the Great Barrier Reef. There are mm -hmm. so many stories 
um, that we could have learned a lot from many years ago, but only now we're starting to listen and incorporate that balance between cultural knowledge and scientific knowledge to actually see the value of both. And that to go forward, we need that collaboration between the different you know, communities and the groups to have both ideas to how to solve the issues. Because as you know, it's a wicked problem to deal with any sort of you know, ocean conservation or climate change um, problems that we are facing. Before we kind of uh, start wrapping up, mm-hmm. uh, I did want to, you know, just learn a bit more about uh, your thoughts on um, what kind of jobs are there in marine conservation or science or any of these things, ocean-related uh, disciplines that don't necessarily follow the pathway of academia. Uh, as I know you mentioned that and you know, there are many different types of people in this world. And as you mentioned, you know, we need um, those softer social sciences incorporated as well to improve um, our conservation policies. Oh, of course. I think it's so important for young people to understand that to be a marine uh, marine scientist, you do not have to follow the same pathway university, master's degree, PhD, postdoc. There's so many different pathways that you can take. And of course, you're aware, one of the main ones is the science communicator. You're an amazing science communicator. And so many of your invited guests are doing amazing work in art, videography, etc. But we also need people on the front lines collaborating directly with policymakers and kind of bridging that gap. Because I have been in uh, governmental government policymakers, their kind of eyes just glaze over when researchers start talking about equations, and it's not really effective means mm-hmm. of communication. So we really need people like that working directly with the general public and taking our scientific results and making them understandable, easy to digest. Um, but there's also so many other routes. There's you if you are interested in technology there's virtual reality and ocean conservation now a lot of conservation groups are partnering with tech companies doing a lot of education outreach there's marine pharmacology which is a super interesting aspect of marine science if you're into medicine i mean so many so many there's so there's so much potential in the ocean. I mean, cone snail toxin is a thousand times more powerful than morphine. And we're kind of incorporating that into human use. We all know about the horseshoe cat problem and how their mm-hmm. blood is used to test for uh, impurities. Uh, there's marine biotechnology, there's marine archaeology. So honestly, for I think it's very important for educators and outreach groups to kind of gauge what their audience's interests are and kind of relate it back to the ocean because everything is so intertwined. So I think it's pretty easy. It's pretty fun. A lot of people aren't aware of the different routes. They kind of think that marine researchers are just in the lab or scuba diving all the time but there's a lot of different paths Mm -hmm. that you can merge with your own interests there were uh, plenty of amazing ideas there that I hope some of my audience 
um, you know, take by the horns and maybe get into it. I would love to see some more projects to do with uh, virtual reality and conservation. That sounds fascinating and definitely beyond my scope of knowledge. <laughs> Uh, as we wrap up, I wanted to ask you the question that uh, I ask every single guest. And you know, because you listen to this podcast, and thank you so much for enjoying it. Of course. <laughs> uh, and that's, what is the one piece of advice that you would give, you know, ocean lovers, uh, up and coming students and wanting to save the world people <laughs> uh, to help the ocean? So what's the one piece of advice you'd give them? Well, I know you can ask a hundred different experts and get a hundred different answers that run the gamut from informed posting on social media to understanding your individual habits and consumption. But I think for me, the main piece of advice I would like to give is to not be afraid to reach out and get started. What's really amazing is that you can see inspiring young activists from all over the world really making a difference and bringing light to different issues. And organizations that help our oceans are everywhere. And it's just a matter of being proactive and getting started. And even if you're in a landlocked area, there are citizen science projects through websites like Zooniverse. And for young people, there's Think Ocean, which is an amazing um, young generation led organization, which connects students from all over the world. And they work towards awareness and bringing systemic change and in ocean policy. So honestly, from as young as elementary school, any generation, uh, just try and get started because there's something for everyone. Thank you so much for that. That's a great piece of advice. And I'll be including all the links of the things you've talked about in the show notes. Where can people find you and your project? Probably right now, most directly on the Institute of Oceanography in Poland, their kind of page. I'll put links to my own um, personal profiles as well. If there's anyone who wants to reach out for uh, education outreach events or want to collaborate or even do any internships uh, with me, I'm more than happy to field questions. I promise that most people working in marine science are super friendly. We really want to um, help the community. So we're always excited to receive emails. Don't be afraid to email. Thank you so much once again, Emily. And I hope everyone else found this as enlightening as I did. And yeah, I definitely want to go look at those pictures of the copepods and ostropods now. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. That's it. That's another podcast. Make sure to reach out to Emily or me about anything that you may have questions about or just would like us to expand upon. It's always so amazing to just hear from people in different parts of the world and the projects they're working on. And it's a great uh, inspiration for us to keep doing the work we're doing and to remember that every little thing counts and there's an amazing community of people like you and I who care about our oceans, who care about our planet, who care about a better tomorrow. So don't forget to send me a message about anyone else you might want to see on the podcast and I'll see you again in two weeks. Until then, thank you so much for listening.